You are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, we hear from State Health Director Libby Char. She shares more details about how officials are strategically planning how best to roll out the vaccines. Part of the challenge is that we will only know from week to week how much and when the vaccines will be sent our way. We have been working on a comprehensive plan to try and get vaccine to the community. And we realize that means that it's going to have to be different mechanisms to get vaccines to people in different places. Some people will come forward and those people can go to a pod. Some people either physically can't do that or culturally that's not an acceptable thing or they're just not likely to do it. So we're trying to get vaccine to the people where they live and where they're willing to take the vaccine. So we have kind of four main areas right now that we are working on. The first is the large long-term care facilities, and that's being done through federal contract with CVS and Walgreens. And the second is the smaller long-term care facilities, and those are for the smaller care homes, the residential care homes, the foster care homes, the disability homes and whatnot. And so we're working with the small independent pharmacies to have them go into those homes and to do the vaccination of the residents and the caregivers within those care homes. Third is the federally qualified health care centers, and those are really important because those are a part of their communities, and so especially in areas where it may be a little bit challenging for others to, to go in, because these FQHCs are really a part of that community, they live there, they work there, they really is their community, they will likely be a lot more successful in getting vaccine to that population. Give us an example of one of those. Oh, Kokua Kalihi Valley, Kalihi Palama, Waianae Comprehensive. On Hawaii, it would be Olalahui, um, as well as you know, Maui, Big Island. So every, every island has FQHCs. There, there are more than that. I'm just naming mm-hmm. the ones off the top of my head. But if they can help vaccinate their communities, I think they will be much more successful than if I were to just walk out to one of these communities and offer vaccines. Okay, and then what's the fourth area? Fourth area would be the pods, and that's primarily what you're used to seeing or what people have been hearing about in the news. So, for example, we have a pod from the Department of Health that's being done on the windward side of the island, um, and there's one at Leeward Community College that uh, the city is helping us with. And we're just doing these things in in partnership, but we've been trying to be very methodical and targeting first the 1A population. So those are the healthcare providers, and those are those living in long-term care facilities. And so we've gotten a pretty good foothold on that, and that's progressing. And so even as that's progressing, as we get more vaccine, we've sort of transitioned, and we're now also including certain subpopulations in Group 1B. So, for example, we've been working to vaccinate first responders as well as those frontline um, essential workers that really are dealing very closely with people that have a high risk for COVID. So, for example, the the folks that that work in the state lab with the COVID specimens and also work in community labs, but they're in contact with virus. Those that work at isolation and quarantine facilities because they're coming into contact with people that have COVID infections. So those kind of populations we've been working on as well. Do you have any additional information about the additional doses that may be uh, arriving on island? So one of our challenges is that it's really hard to plan ahead because we don't usually hear until the end of the week what we have available to place as orders for the following week. It makes it a little bit challenging. So we just found out that we will have access to 13,000 doses. Those are going to be used for second doses, though, 
on people from 1A that had been vaccinated three, four weeks ago. And then additionally, we're going to get another almost 14,000 doses that we can use for first dose vaccination. So there's a little bit of complexity, too, to try and sort out who's a first dose and a second dose. We are trying to add, and this is kind of a significant thing, that we're trying to add two pods that would be more for the community. And we think that we will probably get that up and running in the next week or two. And those would be a little bit more longstanding, so to be there for at least a couple of months. And we'd like to use those to, you know, with the help of our healthcare partners, to help vaccinate our kupuna next. That's going to be a big pop, big segment of the population. But we're trying to get our kupuna that are 75 and older. And so to have multiple choices, obviously some of our kupuna are in long-term care facilities or are in small residential care homes or will be addressed by their you know, community health centers. But additionally now there, there will be a couple other venues that they can go to to get vaccine if, if that works for them. Can you say how soon it might be before the vaccines are available at private uh, physicians' offices? So with regard to vaccine in private physicians' offices, um, I don't have an exact time frame for that. This vaccine's a little bit different from previous ones. So whereas flu vaccine, you could order it and leave it in your office, in your refrigerator, the characteristics, at least of these first two vaccines that came out, the storage requirements are, are very different. So for the Pfizer, in order to store it long-term, you need ultra-cold freezers that you know, can drop down to minus 70 degrees. And there are a lot of handling issues and logistics that accompany that. And so we also don't want to waste any of it. And so if there are five doses in a vial, we don't want to have somebody just draw out one dose and administer it when that vial needs to be used within six hours of thawing and bringing it to room temperature. So once they draw out one dose, that, that vial is only good for a total of six hours. So we definitely don't want to waste it. So I don't envision private physicians having large amounts of vaccine in their office just yet. But, for example, with the FQHCs, that would be great if they could, you know, be administering vaccine to their populations because there, there are enough people going through their yeah, on a regular in basis. Six You're, hours, right, right, in that six hours to make sure. And, and, and you do it by appointment as well so that we're not wasting any of it. Okay. Um, but, but part so, of it's the supply as well. So, you know, until we get a really robust supply going, it's probably not going to go out to private physician offices just because we don't have enough. Right. So people just need to sit tight. Yep. Because there, there are a number of people that maybe want to jump the line, you know, and are eager to get mm-hmm. the vaccines. And then there are others that are willing to sit and wait until maybe, you mm-hmm. know, another company comes up with something and you only have to do the shot once instead of twice. Mm-hmm. So, so far, most of the vaccines are looking like you'll need two doses. There's one vaccine that looks like it will work with, off of a single dose, but those don't have emergency use authorization yet. So for our purposes in the United States, we have our choice for, of the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. And so those are the two that we are receiving from Operation Warp Speed in the state of Hawaii right now. We have the Department of Health website. You go to that, it's hawaiicovid19.com. And if you click on that, you can find the word COVID there and click on it. And it takes you right into the vaccine section. And there's all kind of links in there you can click on. So for example, if you're a, a physician or a, a healthcare worker in the state of Hawaii, and you're not affiliated with a hospital or something, need to get vaccinated, you can click on the section for clinicians, 
and it'll take you to a link, and there's all kind of information. There's all kind of resources, and we're putting some data up there. We're hoping to update it very regularly, so please go to that hawaiicovid19.com website. There's a lot of information there, and there are all kind of links. Okay. Um, we, we did stand up a phone line, and it's 586-8332, and that's for information about the vaccine. We're just getting started with that, so that people were patient that we would appreciate that. Go to the website. It's got some graphics on there. It'll give people a sense of, you know, where they fall and, and what the time frame would be for them receiving vaccine. Got a lot of information, and we're updating it pretty regularly. We have a lot of listeners across the state. Is there anything particular to the neighbor islands that you'd like to stress? Yeah, so the neighbor islands are doing a great job of getting vaccine to the community as well. We're all following very similar guidelines, and that's guidance that comes from the CDC. But at the same time, we're trying to be flexible, like I said, and get vaccine to people where they live and where they're willing to accept it. And so just operationally, some of the neighbor islands may be doing things a, a little bit different, but that's just because that's what works for that community. But in general, we're all following the same guidelines. It's the same vaccine. We get a statewide allocation, and so we're doing the allocation statewide to make sure that everybody's got vaccine. And I think my message to the public would be we're, we're receiving vaccine. The hospitals and our other partners and the Department of Health, we're all ramping up now, and so we're getting vaccine out there faster and faster every week. We just ask that people be patient. We absolutely envision anybody that wants to receive vaccine will have an opportunity to do so and to get both doses. You know, we've had vaccine for, what, three, four weeks now, and part of it was a Christmas holiday and then the New Year holiday, so we've had a, a, a reasonable start, but I think as time goes on now, it's just going to accelerate and, and we're going to get more vaccine out quicker. And then it really is contingent upon how much vaccine are we going to get from our federal partners. What about like the settlement over at Kalapapa? Is there anything special being done for the folks that are living down there? So we're trying to cover everybody. I don't believe we've vaccinated people in Kalapapa yet, but we have done vaccinations, I believe, in other parts of Maui County, Kauai County, Big Island. So we'll, we will get there. We'll, well, actually, we'll get to everybody, but I don't believe vaccines have been given within Kalaupapa yet. Okay, I just know they're concerned because I think there there may have been a, a, a you know one or more positive COVID cases, and and you know yeah they're worried. Sure, sure. You know we're starting slow. We can get the bugs out. You know as opposed to you know we try to do that rapid search testing when we mm-hmm. line uh-huh. people up at H three, right? I mean mm-hmm. there were some snafus that first day. And with the vaccine, it, it's. It's the medication, right? So we're trying to do it as efficiently as we can, as safely as we can. And then there's a lot of logistics that we need to pay attention to, like making sure that your first and your second dose match, making sure we're storing it properly, we're handling it properly. And we have to be cognizant of, you know, are people going to have any kind of adverse reactions? And if so, what and how do we deal with it? So I think there are a lot more considerations to it. And I think we've actually been doing a really good job in conjunction with a whole bunch of partners. So with the counties and with the healthcare system, they've been absolute terrific partners stepping up. The Healthcare Association of Hawaii has been wonderful. Um, Department of Health and some of our other departments within the state, and everybody just pulling together. And I think that sort of stems from the issue that I constantly am raising, where most states have a state Department of Health, and they do administrative and regulatory functions. And each county has a county department of health, and they do the operations. We don't have that in Hawaii. We have one state department of health. 
So as a result, we don't have a robust operations side because mm-hmm. that's normally done at the county level. And so it has forced us to partner with counties and private agencies and community agencies and non nonprofits, and which which in many ways is a good thing because I think it gives us a more robust community and a more resilient community. And mm-hmm. Thankfully, everybody really has been stepping up and pitching in. I've been in contact with Dr. Vivek Nurkar over at the UH Med School mm-hmm. and the lab there, and I know he said that I think they were starting to look for the mutation, mm-hmm. the, the virus that's, that's mutated. There are actually several variants and mutations that have been identified over time, which, which you would expect, especially from a coronavirus. I think the one that most people are hearing about is the B117 that's been identified in the UK. There's also a variant from South Africa. The take-home, though, is that since about June of this year, the state lab under Dr. Ed Desmond has been doing a terrific job, and they've been doing surveillance all along. We've tested over 700 samples thus far, constantly on the lookout for mutations and variants. And in certain places, like in the outbreaks and the clusters that we've had in the prison system, they can do genomic sequencing there to check and see if where are those cases coming from? Are they related? Is it coming from one prison to the next? So, or so is it intrinsic? So do we have any information? Do we have that highly contagious We mutation? have not seen the B117 in Hawaii yet. It stands to reason that it's probably a matter of time since they've discovered a fair amount of cases in California, as well as I think some in Colorado and New York. So we haven't seen any, any cases of that here yet. We are receiving a good amount of vaccine. We'll get it out to the public. Our next big push is going to be for our Kupuna age 75 and older. We have several 1B, so stand by. We will get word out to you on how to sign up for a vaccine because we're doing this by appointment so that it's safe and, and efficient. And we'll let you know how to do that. And for those that need help, we'll, we'll have assistance or family members can assist. We will get vaccine to everybody that, that wants it. That was State Health Director Libby Char talking about new information it's received about additional vaccines that are to arrive next week. Distribution plans are being finalized as it can button down critical information to get those shots to high-priority groups across the state. And those uh, plans for the vaccine rollout come as the state is seeing a spike in new cases. We've known that increased gatherings over the holidays would result in a rise in cases, and we're now starting to see that development in the daily numbers. Uh, that news also means further pressure on hospitals. HPR's Ashley Mazuo spoke with healthcare leaders about what the hospitals are anticipating in the next few weeks. Hawaii saw its highest single-day increase in new COVID-19 cases since September yesterday. We are experiencing a surge, without a doubt, from the holidays. There was a lot of gathering. That's Lieutenant Governor Josh Green. We could still go to work, still go out to dinner, but no personal gatherings and social gatherings just have to be put on hold for two weeks. If we do that, we'll see our numbers come down, but we're likely to still see pretty high numbers for at least a week no matter what. He says these steps should prevent county mayors from rolling back reopening measures. More cases mean more hospitalizations, and there's been a 77% increase in hospitalizations over the last two weeks. 
Hilton Rathel is the president of Healthcare Association of Hawaii, a group that represents hospitals. He says it's likely to get worse. There will be a continued rise in the number of hospitalizations because we know both from our experience here in Hawaii and from experience on the mainland that there is a lag between the increase in infection rates and the hospital admission rate. About 120 COVID-19 patients are now in Hawaii's hospitals. At the pandemic's peak in September, hospitals were seeing almost 300 COVID patients on top of other sick people seeking care. At that point, the state used federal funds to bring in more health care staff, often the main limitation for hospital capacity. But Rathel says that relief has ended and the state will need to keep its COVID hospitalizations below 200. However, the advances being made in the treatment of the virus may be a bright spot. Take Maui Memorial Medical Center. It's seen an uptick in COVID-19 patients, but has been able to keep its ICU count down. Mike Rembis is a hospital CEO. There's other options in the treatment that we didn't have six months ago, eight months ago, but these patients are still very sick, but they're not requiring ICU care and ventilator care as many patients did in the past. But an overwhelmed hospital can negate these advances. Rathel points to the healthcare systems in places like California where facilities are well beyond capacity. Does the quality of care suffer when you're at that level? Absolutely it suffers because you just don't have enough people to go around. You don't have enough resources to go around. People are working way too many hours, which is not a good thing. So we are working very, very hard to ensure that every person who does need hospitalization gets the care that they need and we want to be able to continue to do that. About 30,000 people statewide have received a first dose of the vaccine, but only a handful have received the second dose needed three or four weeks later. Rathel estimates that it'll take several months for the vaccine to make a material impact on the pandemic. In the meantime, he says it'll be another four to six weeks until the state is through the risk period from the holidays. And Green says if the new infection rates stay this high, hospitals will be completely overrun in six weeks. For Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Ashley Mizuo. This is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, if you live in Hawaii, you know that where we live, there are rainbows. And usually, you have to look up to spot them. But did you know that there are others with roots? Well, Hawaii is home to a species of trees known commonly as rainbow eucalyptus. In the scientific world, the trees are referred to as eucalyptus de gupta. And they are easily identified by their multi-hued rainbow-colored bark. The trees shed uh, during certain times of the year, revealing layers of fresh green bark. 
Later, it darkens to shades of blue, purple, yellow, orange, and maroon. The final result looks like a mixture of all the colors and is what gives the trees their rainbow-like quality. For today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know, what's another common name for the rainbow eucalyptus tree? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you think you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets our reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nayrit Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to strengthening communities statewide by supporting affordable housing, providing infrastructure, and creating jobs. Learn more at nayrithawaii.com. state lawmakers assigned to oversee Hawaiian affairs legislation uh, this session appears to be lacking Native Hawaiian legislators. To tell us more about what this could mean for Hawaiian issues at the state capitol this year is HPR reporter Ku'uvehi Hiraishi. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So this is a head scratcher. Uh, you know, uh, no Hawaiians <laughs> on the Native Hawaiian. How did this happen, yeah. right? Um, so everyone knows the legislative committee assignments and reassignments are nothing new at the state legislature, right? Every couple, every so often, we're, we'll have uh, leadership in each chamber use the make the best use of their legislators by assigning them to areas that perhaps uh, they have a background in or a skill set in. And when it comes to Hawaiian affairs, each chamber does have its own committee responsible for vetting legislation related to Hawaiian affairs. So. Think of proposals for the Department of Hawaiian Homelands or Office mm. of Hawaiian Affairs. All this legislation does have to go through uh, these Hawaiian Affairs Committees, Hawaiian Affairs Committees. And uh, how it works is each legislator will actually request to be on these committee, this committee or that committee, based on their preferences, right, their issue, their constituency perhaps cares about a particular area. And, uh, and so that's where we found ourselves. Well, so what are you telling me then? None of the Native Hawaiian lawmakers wanted to be on the Hawaiian Affairs Committee? No, it, it's hard to, to tell. I haven't been able to talk to all of Native Hawaiian legislators, but that was uh, that appears to be the case coming from Big Island Representative Mark Nakashima in the State House of Representatives. So he's the new chair of the Judiciary and Hawaiian Affairs Committee in the House. And he says there was a reluctance amongst some of his Native Hawaiian colleagues to, to join uh, his committee of about a dozen or so. So there is one a Native Hawaiian, he says, uh, James Tokioka, representative from Kauai, on that House Committee on Hawaiian Affairs. And then on the Senate side, uh, Waiana is Miley Shimabukuro, who you know, is not Hawaiian, uh, chairs that Hawaiian Affairs Committee. And she says of the five uh, members on her committee, two are well, how much influence do these committees have in terms of the, you know, the bills that are being considered? 
Right. So as I kind of mentioned earlier, any legislative proposal dealing with Hawaiian affairs will need to advance through these committees. And if a hearing perhaps is not scheduled for a legislature, you know, for some proposal, that won't get its, uh, I guess it's a day in the light at the legislature. So that uh, that worries folks like Helani Sonora Pale, as she's with the Political Action Committee, Kalafui Hawaii. She's been monitoring Hawaiian legislation and issues at the state capitol for years. And for her, uh, it's about Native Hawaiian representation or lack thereof. And we have some legislators who are Hawaiian. Right. The other concern is that there's a lot of leg- Hawaiian legislators in the House that don't want to be on there. They don't want to lead the committee. They don't want to be on there. Because we all know Hawaiian issues are the most controversial issues. So what are some of the top issues that are being considered by the Native Hawaiian uh, Affairs Committees this year? The most talked about proposal in both chambers uh, seems to be the DHHL gambling bill. Ah, yes. So this, uh, (laughs) you heard about it. It is a proposal uh, to generate revenue for the Department of Hawaiian Homelands by allowing the development of a casino uh, on Hawaiian homelands in Kapolei. So that is definitely, I've heard from both uh, chairs of the Hawaiian Affairs Committee in both chambers saying that is likely the issue. They'd like to give it a fair hearing, but they know that it has raised a lot of community concern, especially with homesteaders. Uh, there's also some legislation calling for greater protections of Ipikukuna, strengthening burial protections. And this, I think, is uh, going to make some headway this year after seeing some of the events in Lahaina, on Maui, at the end of last year, uh, there was some development that did uh, run into uh, some protests by folks from the area who were worried that uh, proper vetting for EV wasn't done. So we'll see some of that legislation going through. There are also proposals to reform elections uh, for trustees of the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, which uh, we know a proposal is in there to randomize the names, that, mm. <laughs> the order in which names appear on the ballot, which has always been a, a concern in that race, uh, but also uh, another proposal to allow for funding parity because for some of these um, candidates who run, they are running statewide campaigns with uh, little to no funding to do so. So those well, are some of the, the hot topics we'll be seeing uh, this session. So is the, I guess, the concern that, you know, if you're a non-Hawaiian lawmaker that you may not fully grasp some of these issues and the impact that it could have on Native Hawaiians? Yes, I, I think that's uh, at, the, at the core of it. But, but there is some, some value in having that outsider's perspective, or at least that's what um, White and I, Senator Miley Shimabukuro, had, had mentioned. Uh, she is not Hawaiian, as we mentioned earlier, and, and she's managed to, you know, do a really good job of, uh, chairing the Hawaiian Affairs Committee for nearly a decade in the Senate. She says sometimes her being an outsider has been an advantage in her role as committee chair. And I can see why for a lot of Hawaiians it, it, it would be difficult because there's so much extended family, and <laughs> right? And, you know, you're often so close to the issue because of, you know, your relatives or your obviously your friends, your neighbors, your community, that it might be, it might put you in a difficult position you have to say something that might offend, you know, your neighbor, or cousin, whoever it is. Whereas for someone like myself who's not Hawaiian, you know, maybe it's easier. It's easier for me to say it. 
So that that may be the case with with the House Committee on Judiciary and Hawaiian Affairs. Perhaps that outsider perspective will help elevate the discourse. But that doesn't mean that that non-Hawaiian legislators are not seeking guidance from their Hawaiian uh, counterparts. So what do you think is going to happen in the House? What does Representative Nakashima plan to do just to make sure that the Native Hawaiians, uh, that voice, you know, is heard in this whole process if he's only got one Native Hawaiian on his on his committee? I mean, I understand the whole Pilikia thing, right? Right, right. No, he, he did say that he plans to form an advisory committee to sort of help him guide uh, his, uh, his gather Manao, but also guide him on these issues, and not just in Hawaiian issues, but others as, as well. He uh, did plan on doing some training specific to Native Hawaiian law and issues, uh, but he sort of, you know, he had the idea that he, he doesn't need the Native Hawaiian voice only on the committee to get through to him, meaning he will be constantly and actively seeking out the mana'o of his Native Hawaiian uh, colleagues in the, both chambers of the legislature as he goes through some of these issues. So, you know, he's he's trying, and I think, if anything, there will be many Native many in the Native Hawaiian community keeping a close eye on how this all uh, turns out. It is interesting, though, because uh, if you look to the, uh, the nation's capital, right, uh, the incoming president, uh, right. Biden, uh, is making a big case for diversity and making sure that the people, uh, that there, there are enough uh, people of color in high positions because a lot of these areas, you know, affect uh, uh, those citizens across the state, or across the nation, actually. Um, so, you know, right, the idea. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, the idea of, of representation, I think, is what you're kind of getting at is, is important, and I think we're seeing that as the essential point in this debate. Uh, we do not uh, see anything happening before the start of the session to add any Native Hawaiian legislators necessarily to this House committee. Um, but Shimabu Kuro mentioned um, that she's looking forward to working with her, her counterpart in the House uh, on these Hawaiian affairs issues uh, this coming session and that they may be keeping a close eye on what happens with committee assignments uh, in the future. Here's Shimabu Kuro. You know, as a neighbor island boy, I mean, I'm sure he also has ties to the Hawaiian community as well. That's perhaps why he was interested in the position. So I look very much forward to working with him. But, of course, you know, I, I hear the concerns, and I'm sure that, um, you know, that, that is something that should be addressed um, by both houses of the legislature. We make sure that Hawaiians, act, you know, Hawaiian voices are heard via um, Hawaiian legislators. All right, so everybody will be watching. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, th they will. Thanks so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. That was HPR reporter Kuvehi Rishi talking about legislative committee assignments and what it could mean for Hawaiian issues. You can find her story online at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check today looks at the state of our state coffers. Reporter Kevin Dayton on the line with us. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. Uh, you know, we know that the budget's going to be a big concern with this economic crisis. Uh, what's the skinny? Huge concern. Um, basically, the, 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 the new news is that the State Council on Revenues met um, yesterday and made some important revisions to their projection um, for the coming, uh, basically the important part is for the coming three years, this year and for the coming two years. The council, just by way of background, the council is a, a body of seven economists or accountants, uh, people who basically with an expertise in taxes. And they, their task is to project um, in the years ahead what the uh, tax collections are going to be. And it's very, very, it's, it's um, predictions are very, very closely watched at the legislature and by the administration because it forms essentially the foundation of the state budget. You've got to know how much money you're going to bring in to know how much you can spend, and it sort of underpins uh, everything that happens for the rest of the session. So what, um, in September, the council, which was, of course, a very frightening time with the pandemic, the council made a projection that the state tax collections for this current fiscal year that began July 1st we're going to drop by 11%, which is, I don't know that it's unprecedented, but that's an extraordinary decline in tax collections. And, you know, everybody statewide is going to feel it because services are going to have to be cut. You know, as you, as you know, there is this talk of furloughs, layoffs of, of state employees, all of that. That all ties in with this, this prediction that, that tax collections are going to drop by 11% because of the, the shutdown of tourism. Yesterday, what the council did was made, looked at that projection and said, well, we were, we were too pessimistic. So we're going to revise that, and we'll say that the decline in tax collections is going to be just negative 6.5%. Did I say just? I'll put that in quotes <laughs> because that's still a lot. That's a very steep decline in tax collections. But when you go from negative 11 to negative 6.5, that's a savings. That means that the state essentially for the current fiscal year, the next six months, has about $300 million more to work with than they thought they had because that's money that's going to be coming in that they thought would, would not. So that's a, a really important statement about this current fiscal year. Well, I'm sure that the money chairs hope that uh, this uh, forecast is right because, I mean, they're the ones that have to, you know, they're going to be charged with crunching the numbers. Yeah, they're going to have a brutal year this year. And the reaction from uh, House Finance Chair Sylvia Luke was, Gee, that helps, but that's not going to solve the entire problem because, you know, in the years going ahead, you know, we'll, we'll still be trying to play catch up. We'll, it'll take us some time to get back to, uh, I believe it was fiscal year 19, we, we had tax collections of about $7 billion for the state general treasury. We won't be back to that level for at least a couple of years yet. And, and people will feel that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, yeah. Now, Looking ahead to the next two years, the, the council also made an important decision about that period. Um, uh, Governor Ige right now, these, these uh, predictions of, of budget cuts and, and such apply to basically the, the two-year cycle that begins this coming July 1st. And what the council decided was they had predicted that the economy was going to bounce back sharply in the year that begins July 1st. Uh, the tax collections would be up by 8.5%. They modified that prediction yesterday to say, well, tax collections are really only going to bounce by about 6% for the coming year, for the next year, and then another 6% for the following year. If you take all that as a package and put it all together for the next two years, that means the legislature now has, based on yesterday's decision, now has about $650 million more to work with 
than they thought they were going to have. So if you combine the $300 million for this year and the $650 million for the next two years, that was a billion-dollar bump that, that basically the Council on Revenues gave to the state as you, as you sort of look at what the tax collections are likely to be. That really helps. That makes a big difference in, in their deliberations this year. Well, you know, I know that there, there's just a, uh, a lot of hope <laughs> that these, you know, projections are, are right, but, you know, we, we've got to be cautious. But you, you still have to have a, a plan just in case that doesn't happen. Absolutely. And, you know, as the council has said repeatedly, it's, it's very, very difficult to project what's going to happen next. I mean, if you think about the variables for a minute, you know, the, mm-hmm. how much depends on how fast and efficient the vaccine rollout is, how much depends on how people feel in the state of California um, when, when they're finally in a, in a position to travel. Um, Carl Bonham, uh, a very well-known state economist over at the UH, was pointing out yesterday that because so many of us have been sort of shut down and shut in, the savings rates have gone up for a significant portion of the population, which means there might be some pent-up demand and some pent-up savings, some savings that have built up, and people be ready to blow some money when, when they finally are free to travel and, and, and aren't frightened. Um, that would bode very well for Hawaii if that happens and if that translates into more visitors to the state. Right. Well, we'll just have to see what happens. I know the uh, the calendar for the legislative session just got posted, so, uh, you know, be interesting to see how that plays out. It's a little bit shortened. I think that then what they normally uh, go through is the beginning of May. Uh, and I was hearing talk that they might try and limit the number of bills, but I don't know what's come out in the end here. So lots to watch. Lots to watch this year. It's going to be a fascinating year, but it's going to be all about the money. It yep. really is. All right. Okay, thanks so much, Kev. Thank you so much. Take care. That was reporter Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. To read his story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from ProService Hawaii, wishing everyone a happy new year, committed to helping employers view HR in a new way. ProService.com slash new year or by calling 808-207-7634. This Saturday on our sister station, HPR2, From the Top, will feature two local siblings recorded in the Atherton studio. Violinist Ilong and Ishing Guo perform Pablo de Sarasate's Navarra, Opus 33. They'll be accompanied by Dr. Thomas Yi on piano. Join us in celebrating these talented local artists. That's this Saturday at 10 a.m. on HPR2, your home for classical music. On the next Fresh Air, we remember writer Barry Lopez. He died Christmas Day. We'll listen back to two interviews with him from 1989 and 2013. He wrote eloquently about the relationship between the natural world and human culture. His books include Arctic Dreams and Of Wolves and Men. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following Science Friday. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Hawaii Naturopathic Retreat Center.
Earlier in the show, we told you about a unique tree found in Hawaii, known scientifically as Eucalyptus deglucta. These trees are, have multi-hued rainbow-colored bark. It happens as their outermost bark layers peel away at certain times of the year. The shedding reveals fresh green bark that matures into shades of blue, purple, yellow, orange, and maroon. The final result looks like a mixture of all the colors and is what gives the trees their rainbow-like quality. Some people know this tree by its colorful name, the rainbow eucalyptus. Others call it the Mindanao gum. And this was a popular question. We had lots of calls, but congratulations to our winner, Joanne Stinton from Pacific Heights. And I can share with you, I came across some of these trees just the other day at Pearl Ridge Center by the uh, Monterey Bay Canners. So uh, check them out. That's today's quiz. If you can share a topic for a future quiz, uh, go to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. Today, fresh flowers mark a Kalihi gravesite just off of School Street. It was on January 8, 1932, that Joseph Kaha'avai Jr. was murdered. He was one of five men accused of raping Thalia Massey, wife of a naval officer. Their trial resulted in a hung jury, but the story doesn't end there. Not long after that, Kaha'avai was uh, kidnapped by Officer Thomas Massey and others and was shot dead. While the jury convicted them for killing Kahavai, they never served a day in jail. We pick up the story with cemetery historian Nanette Napoleon, who has a personal connection to this story of race and injustice. My connection to this case goes back to my grandfather, who was Walter Napoleon, and he was a juror, one of the jurors on the, uh, not the first trial, but the second trial, the murder case of uh, Joseph Kahavai. And so I've known about this story for since I was young. And because every January 8th, uh, if, if the family was gathered for any reason or something, uh, we, we would all, the adults would always talk about the case, especially my grandparents. They would, um, you know, relive the case and, and pass the story down to what happened in grandpa's role as a juror. So I grew up with that story, but I, I didn't pay it much attention until I was in my 30s and becoming a, a historian um, in Hawaii. And and then the story took on another dimension for me. I, I, I realized how, uh, for the first time, how important that case was in the history of um, Hawaii. And so I started doing my own research along the way, and I've read all the books written about this, the case and whatnot. So I've had a, a big interest in the story f- for many years. And for listeners who don't know about the Massey case, Joseph was killed. He was kidnapped and killed at the you know, hands of uh, Officer Massey and his, uh, his friends. And his mother-in-law, Mrs. Fortescue. But they never served any time in jail. Yeah, they, they went to trial, and it was a big national, international case because, uh, a trial, because... Not only did it involve alleged rape of a white officer's, naval officer's uh, wife, but it also involved the fact that Mrs. Fortescue, um, the woman who was charged the men in the rape, she, her mother came over, who was, Mrs. Fortescue was a wealthy person, and she hired, brought out of retirement and hired 
Clarence Darrell, the the nation's leading um, trial attorney, he came out and, and he defended the, uh, the conspirators, the four of them, and the trial went on for um, many days, many days, and then it went it went to the jury, and then my grandfather, along with uh, twelve others, who were of a mixed race group, um, there was pure pure Caucasian people, there were and pure Japanese, and then the, yeah, some of the others who were mixed. And your grandfather was part Hawaiian? My, yes, my father was part Hawaiian, Japanese, Tahitian, Corsican. And when he listed all of his, the judge says, well, what does that make you? He said, and my grandfather said, that makes me the League of Nations. <laughs> and everybody laughs, and it became a famous quote <laughs> for Grandpa. But, you know, on the other side of that, Grandpa at the time was a butcher at Piggly Wiggly store, which was a big door in Hawaii at the time. And he was a butcher and part-time manager. And people would call the store and threaten to destroy the store, do vandalism at the store. If they didn't fire him, uh, they, they went, they cruised by his house in Punchbowl and uh, were shouting at, you know, shouting about him and everything like that. So my family was really scared, you know, about the whole thing. And the trial resulted in the conviction of all the defendants. That's right. Um, but explain th the fact that they never served a single day in jail. So the, the jury came back in a relatively short period of time, and uh, they were convicted. And immediately after reading the conviction, the police came in, the Honolulu Police Department came in, took the defendants, convicted defendants, walked them, escorted them across the street, they uh, walked them from uh, Honolulu Hale and they to the state capitol, took them to the second floor, and they met the governor for an hour. It, there's a famous photo that shows them just smiling on the, on the second floor balcony. And, and then the governor commuted their sentence. I think they, they got 10 years sentence. And they, the governor commuted it to one hour served, served at his office and they booked him on the very next ship out of Honolulu. So <laughs> within two or three days after the trial, they were gone. They were on their way to the United States. And so this case really is about discrimination and oh, injustice? Yeah. And yeah, so, you know, the murder part about it is that first he was kidnapped from the, the front of the, the, the courthouse and then taken to Mrs. Fortescue's House, rented house in Manoa because she had come from the mainland, and they interrogated uh, him, Kahawai. They were obsessed with having him confess. Right. And so they kept on prodding him, prodding him, and he wouldn't do, cave in, he wouldn't cave in. And finally, Massey, he shot and killed him. And then they took a, a sheet or blanket or something, and they wrapped him up in that. They put it him in Mrs. Fortescue's car, Tommy, his two shipmates, that subordinates that helped him, and Mrs. Fortescue were in the, her touring car driving out. They decided to dump the body. They had driven through Waikiki with Ka'avai's body in the back seat on the floor, and they get out to where Blowhole is around there, and they were going to dump his body. But luckily, uh, an all-points bulletin went out about it, and so policemen were all over uh, trying to track 
the car down, and um, an alert policeman in Kaimaki, they, they chased Fortescue's car, and so they finally caught up to them uh, near Blowhole. Okay. And then the police went to the car, and they found the body on the on the floor. And Mrs. Fortescue's famous line is that she gets out of the car, she goes on, sits on a, a rock wall retainment thing, and uh, listen, lights a cigarette, just like, and nothing happened here, folks, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then she goes on later to say that was the best decision I ever made to, to kill that guy, to have that guy killed, you know. Every anniversary now, you go to visit the gravesite. You put flowers there. Yeah. And you do it because you think that story ought to be remembered. That's right. It's uh, not just for me personally because I have a, a family connection, but it's one of the most important of our uh, stories in Hawaiian history, and I'm I'm a Hawaiian historian. <laughs> I know a lot of stories, but this one to me is the the most compelling of all the stories uh, like that, and that that's what compels me to want to share this story whenever I can because I want to keep the memory of the story alive. Right. Uh, well, thank you so yeah, much for yeah. for sharing it uh, on this anniversary. Thank you for sharing it. That was cemetery historian Nanette Napoleon talking about the anniversary of the murder of Joseph Kahavai Jr., a native Hawaiian killed by a naval officer 89 years ago today in a case where justice was never served. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with the museum open to guests during evening hours Thursday through Sunday. Current exhibitions and admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. These days, the scene at home is busier. Hands full, meal in the oven, a dog begging for your attention. With so much going on inside, how can you stay connected to what is going on outside your home? Ask your smart speaker to play NPR. You'll get the latest news from your community and beyond. We'll keep you company while you keep things moving. Ask your smart speaker to play KHPR for HPR1 or play KIPO for HPR2. Support for HPR comes from Christina Hom and the Parks Group at Morgan Stanley in Honolulu, wealth advisor and institutional consultant for social and environmental investments. 525-6977, Morgan Stanley Smith Barney LLC, member SIPC. That is it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we look at fish. Do you really know what you're eating? We look at mislabeling. And we would like to know what you think about the events at our nation's capital this week. Have you been affected? Call our talkback line. Leave your comments. That's 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR, or tweet us at HI Conversation. You can also listen back to our shows on the Conversation page on our HPR website. Our program produced by Lillian Song, Harrison Patino, and Jason Uvai. The Backyard Quiz, written for us by John DeMello, and our theme music, courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation. ¶¶